Ho, holy cow, it's Christmas already. Welcome to the Disenfranchised Podcast, where that podcast all about those franchises of one, those films that fancy themselves full-fledged franchises before falling flat on their face after the first film. I am your host, Stephen Foxworthy, and joining me, as always, don't mind the black marks on his forehead, it is Tucker. Hey, Tucker. Hi there, Stephen. How's it going? <laughs> it's going pretty well, man. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing really well. Thank Good. you for asking. I do enjoy asking. And uh, joining us today so that we do not have to talk about this alone and tiptoe and trip all over ourselves, um, from Bodies of Horror, from The Pod and the Pendulum, one of the best in the game, one of the best to ever do it, it's Nicole Goebel. Nicole, welcome. We are thrilled to have you. Hello. I am Nicole, your token female representative. <laughs> No pressure. No pressure. It's all on your shoulders. <laughs> no, I'm so thrilled to be here. We are we are absolutely excited to have you. Um, this uh, so Tucker and I have kind of talked about um, our kind of histories with the Black Christmas franchise already. Um, when I put this the, the kind of the feelers out, this was one of you, this and the original were the two that you kind of put your put your mark down for. Um, what is your history with the Black Christmas franchise and, and specifically with this movie? Uh, what made you want to talk about it with us? So Black Christmas, as a horror fan, you have to know it. You have to love it. You have to respect it, I think. And it was also my mom uh, growing up was always one of those that I think it's PBS uh, where I grew up. Um, we had I, I grew up in a very rural area where cable was uh, a privilege and not a right. Right. Um, and so you would have like the 24 hours of a Christmas story. And my mom was just obsessed with this movie. And I'm like, oh, well, mom, there's this other movie that this filmmaker has also made. It's also a Christmas movie. So let's watch it. <laughs> and... Um, so, yeah, that was kind of like my, an entry point. Um, for this one in particular, also a, a, a family story. I had gone back to visit family uh, after a long time of not being able to go back. And I went to the theaters to see this with my niece and her fiance uh, the day before Christmas. Right on. Nice. Yeah. So, so you've you so you saw this one first run in theaters, yes. Um, right before Christmas, perfect timing. Um, so generally speaking, you're a you're a fan, you're a fan of the franchise, fan of the fan of the film. Yeah, I I am a fan, I guess, of the franchise. Um, 2006 is a little bit of a hard watch for me. Um, just because I feel like one of the things and one of the, I, I am sure part of the conversation that we'll have is that I feel like the relationships in 2006 between our, our sorority sisters, our girls, um, doesn't seem as cohesive and mm. as strong. And where I feel both in the original and this one, that is such uh, a strength to, to both entries so um i do like this one quite a bit i like the original i like 2006 for some of its elements but 
Um, that that one has always just been the one I've revisited the least. And maybe it's just because I don't like – I'm a vegan, and I don't like skin cookies. Yeah, I don't blame you. I, I'm not a vegan, and I don't like skin cookies. Yeah. So yeah. just not a fan, really. No. Right on. I mean, we, I think we were kind of conflicted about 2006 uh, when we recorded that one with Ariel last week. Although, I mean, that is, that is a hundred percent Ariel's jam. Like she, as, as the mid two thousands horror gore queen, that's kind of her, that's kind of her MO. And there's definitely, I think a lot to like with it. Um, Mm -hmm. When I've gone back and rewatched it, there, there are a lot of good bits, but yeah, it's just not the one that I, I go to the most. And I've actually found myself recommending this one mm. a little bit more um, recently than I I would have even imagined coming out of the theater and being like, wow, I really kind of like this. Um, I, I found myself like actually recommending this more to folks. Um, so... So yeah, that's kind of my my thirty thousand foot view uh, of of the Black Christmas franchise, and I do include a Christmas story as um, part of that franchise, which it's fun. Oh, it's okay. <laughs> Where does it fit in? Like, which one is it? A sequel to the first one? Is that how that works? Prequel. I think it's a prequel. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, I um, guess it does take place like in the fifty or in the forties. So I, I guess think it would that be Ralphie cool. is the brother to to one of our characters. Like mm. there's like the dad had an affair, and there's a sister. <laughs> um, yeah, I like to create these little stories. I maybe maybe Margot Kidder's dad. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> That would explain a like lot. It really would explain would. a lot <laughs> when when it comes right down to it. Um, that's hilarious. Right on. No, I, I, so I watched all of the Black Christmas films in 2020 um, for the first time, and this one falls right in the middle of the other two for me. Um, I really I love the original. Um, I think it is incredibly um influential it's it's hard to it's kind of hard to overstate the significance of the original and i'm just not into the the gorier elements of the first remake in 2006 but this one i wanted to like this one a lot more than i did because it does something that i love when horror does which is it it's incredibly topical and it's incredibly relevant to a specific issue at a specific time and this is 2019 in the aftermath of um the the Weinstein um thing i guess the the evidence of that um coming out and all of this, um, and me, the Me Too movement, and everything that that spawned, and everything that created, um, and I, I, I wanted to love this one a lot more than I did, but it, there's no subtlety here. <laughs> like the, it's, it's very on the nose. It's very kind of overt. It, it, it lays everything bare out there for you, 
and basically this is what this is and we're not going to sugarcoat it. And I, and I find that admirable in a way, but it also, it, it, it's difficult to watch sometimes for that reason. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, I think that that's something with the original that a lot of people do praise. I think, especially as we're going back now, um, in 2023 and in more recent years can go back and say, wow, there were some really progressive and interesting ideas that this film was laying out that I don't think we're, we were really chatting about and respecting right. at that time. Um, because I think it came out like a, a year or two after Roe v. Wade. And mm. um, you have an abortion uh, kind of subplot that I think is so interesting and quiet and profound. Mm-hmm. Um and like I said, you have these really strong female characters. Um, and yeah, I mean, now we fast forward to, uh, you know, the release of 2019's Black Christmas. And like you said, we're on the heels of a lot of different things happening. In 2015, you have the release of The Hunting Ground um, mm. documentary, which detailed the incidents of sexual assault on college campuses, which That's right. is something that unfortunately so many folks can raise their hand to um, and, and say that this has been something that they've uh, horrifically experienced. So um, I, it's when listening to criticism for this film, I think you have to you really have to do a lot of uh, sifting mm. through some noise of folks that just don't want to hear, I think, even this more blatant message, which I do think is important. But there is criticism to what you were saying. Like, there isn't this subtlety. And I think as we discuss the film, I think that there are some choices that are made that feel to not hit on the obvious themes um, and and make the points that the filmmakers and the writer uh, wanted to make um, as strongly. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Tucker, you want to weigh in on that? Uh, I think this movie's biggest sin, as far as its message goes, is that for me, the ending of the film negates the whole thing. Like, like I'm, I'm on board. Like, like I understand what they're saying and I, I totally agree. But then to have the villains of this movie be men that are brainwashed, basically like supernaturally brainwashed into being bad men. It just, it just feels like that. It just takes the power out of everything else that they said in the entire movie. It makes it seem more performative than anything else. And it's it's a damn shame because there's a lot of stuff that is is discussed and brought up in this movie that is is righteous and like like should be said as loud as possible. But then when you say it that loud and then just negate the whole thing at the end, it just kind of rubs me the wrong way, you know. But I think to that, and I agree, um, and I certainly understand that point as well, and. 
maybe there's a hundred different ways the film could have ended to move around, I think, landing that way. Right. But I think making that choice is actually kind of interesting because I think it makes much more of a statement about institutional, um, you know, the, the institutional aspects of what's happening mm-hmm, and how mm-hmm. they're, you know, it, it's not just one person that's doing this because we're not all, it's, it's a nature versus nurture situation of, you know, are people just inherently bad or are they put in situations where they have to make choices and they opt for choices that are, that are bad and cause lots of harm. And I think this is saying like, it's, it's a little bit more complex than that and that there are institutions that have been propped up on these ideals and are so adamant on protecting them that basically they they indoctrinate folks. I think it's much more of how our society works on indoctrination versus let's give them an out. Because I think for me, one thing that's really interesting, and I think that this would be maybe one of the many ways to subvert, I think, some of the, the issues that people have with the ending is especially with a couple of the characters, you have an opportunity to see these characters make different choices. Um, to say, like, I don't want to be a part of this. I need mm-hmm. to back away. Um, I, I want to be, like, not just a good guy. I want to be a good human. I want to, like, right. protect people who are in need um, and are being targeted here. Um, and instead we see them kind of fall. Uh, kind of quickly right. to the culture of toxic masculinity. So it's, yeah, I, I, it's it's one of those things that you just have to kind of like wrestle down with and, and figure out like, is this something like I can kind of see what they're saying and I understand like there's some interesting thoughts about indoctrination and kind of the institutional aspects of, of these ideas versus you're just kind of giving these people an out and saying, well, no one should be responsible uh, for causing these harms because, oops, good. Yeah. Right. I, I think I hadn't considered the institutional angle of it. I hadn't and, either. And that, I like that take a lot. And no, what you said makes absolute sense. Like the things, the length that people will go to to protect their institutions um, I, as someone, I know this is going to come as a big surprise to everybody, but I was raised religious. What? Um, I know. I never mention it. I really should talk about that aspect. How of did I not life. know <laughs> this about you, Stephen? I, I thought we were friends. I thought we were too. Keep maybe me you in just, the dark. Maybe you should just pay better attention, Tucker. Um, I guess so. <laughs> but um, I've, I'm, I'm, I'm very engaged in. Um, I, I've been watching a lot of. Um, documentaries and YouTube videos about um, religious organizations and religious sects in particular, like uh, IBF and things like that. And the way that these institutions will completely bury these sexual, I mean, and even on a larger scale, the Catholic fucking church, the way that these, these things will be buried. So as not to um, 
cast aspersions on the organization when all it really does is make the organization look so much worse than that information comes out is absolutely heinous. And I mean, universities, yes, absolutely as well. But, uh, you know, you saying the lengths people will go to, how much more lengths will they go to when it is, you know, they're, they're the thing that they literally base their entire life on? Um, like, it, it's kind of scary to think about it. Yeah, and I feel like this film underscores that by having a professor mm. at the helm, right? Yeah. It's not just another student mm-hmm. who's a professor. Um, and so we see kind of this lineage, I feel, really being kind of, like, dropped down. And you're so right. Um, like, I, I always like to say that I was raised uh, – fundamentalist adjacent. Mm. Um, My parents divorced when I was really young uh, and my dad became kind of like a born-again Pentecostal. Mm. And Mm -hmm. so I, you know, when I would go and spend the mandated time with him, um, it it was a very harmful uh, environment, um, especially someone with a disability. And so you know, delving into, like, what these institutions are doing and how they're treating individuals and and what these institutions will do, how they'll leverage leadership and folks to protect that is so fascinating. And again, is this something that this film could have somehow finessed in a a different way? Probably. Um, But when, I, I guess that, how I, I guess I, how I try to justify my appreciation of this film is like, you know, I think it's making a, a statement about indoctrination and kind of these institutional things. And, uh, you know, so I look at it that way, but. First of all, you don't have to justify your enjoyment of anything. <laughs> like what you like. Absolutely. Um, but I mean, no, cause, and, and that's, that is an interesting point, but, and again, I, I, I read uh, in 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 reading up on this movie before we started talking about it. Um, I saw somewhere that the director said that she set out to make uh, the screenwriter set out to make the most feminist movie possible, and it feels like maybe they thought with a message this important, with with something to say this important, uh, we can't afford subtlety. We can't afford to you know put it under layers of of things. Um, I, I, again, I, I don't know that for sure. That was never stated, but it seems like they just went all out with trying to make this as feminist as possible and making sure that anyone in the audience understood. And it, it could also be that this movie is made for a very specific group of people for a very specific niche. The director also said that she wanted to, instead of um, leering at or objectifying uh, the character's she wanted to make sure that the audience felt seen, um, which indicates that maybe this audience is a little more niche than the previous entries in this franchise had been, um, you know, which, which may be why so many people have a problem with it. Cause they don't understand that maybe this isn't explicitly for them. Right. So, yeah, I think I, I, I can, I can see that um, because uh, now that you've said uh, you brought up um, 
how like the ending kind of uh is is symbolic towards like institutionalization and stuff like that um like i i didn't think of that before and i get that now and that makes it a little better but it still it still didn't work for me and it might just be because maybe it's not for me you know yeah. and and i think that might be one of my biggest issues with it is that i want to be on board with it mm. because i do agree with what they're saying but i just i don't they just they lose me especially at the end because i i, don't, I think it's i think it's the way the film is it's not what the film is saying it's it's the execution of the filmmaking i don't even mm. want to say the mm. way they're saying it because i i don't want to discount anything that's being said in this movie right. i just don't think that that for me that the film is made in a way that I enjoy, I guess, because I, I wanted to like this movie a lot more than I did. Like my want to like it is up here and my, my actual like for it is like, ah, I'm trying to jump up there and smack it. <laughs> I'm trying so hard <laughs> because it feels, it feels wrong to not like a movie that has such a, a powerful message that I agree with. It feels mm. wrong. It feels dirty to not like this movie. <laughs> And so <laughs> I'm kind of struggling with that right now. No, I think it again. You don't have to justify. I think no, not necessarily right. not liking a movie. I think we all have movies that oh well, the message worked, or we like this piece, or you know whatever. But maybe the film overall just didn't work. Mm -hmm. And yeah you could be speaking to something that's true where it was very much intended for a specific audience. And if you don't fall within some parameters, it's just not going to hit you the same. Mm. Um, so there's, I, I, I think there's, it, it, this film is a cake that you can slice, I think a thousand different ways. Um, which I find in and of itself a really kind of fascinating thing to think about. Well, and that's, that's kind of the rad thing about art, you know, is you, you kind of get to take whatever you want out of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, I think that's really cool. I had those, this movie kept making me think of, did you guys see the movie? She said. Not yes. yet. No. I did you guys that see yet. that? I was so excited to see that movie like when it dropped on like Mac, I think it was on max or one of the streaming services. I was like, yes, because uh, all of the people involved with it behind the camera in front of the camera, I was so ready. And I just, it just, I just didn't think it was a very well made movie. And again, it's a shame because it had so much to say, like Ashley Judd, like was brave enough to come in there and literally tell her story mm -hmm. on camera. And for a movie that just fell flat, and I, I kind of got the same feeling out of this one, too. And uh, it's a shame. It's a damn shame. Yeah. I'm just not realizing I never introduced this movie. So, um, <laughs> hey, it's Black Christmas, you guys. <laughs> tw 23 minutes into this recording, um, we're talking about the 2019 remake of Black Christmas, continuing our uh, watch through of all three Black Christmases. Uh, directed by Sophia Takal, uh, written by Sophia and April Wolf, and starring Imogen Poots, Elise Shannon, Lily Donahue, Brittany O'Grady, Caleb Everhart, and Carrie Elways. What a cast. What a picture. 
what an accent on Carrie Elway's there. What the hell was he doing? Like, he's, what was that? <laughs> Rob, he's do, he's channeling his his uh, Prince of or not Prince uh, Men in Tights role. Yeah, I guess I love I Carrie know. Elway's. I just thought his uh, accent was kind of hilarious in this movie. I will say, after going through all of the Saw films, like, thank you, like, thank you, Carrie, for. <laughs> For not going that direction, but right. instead going here. Yeah. I find this so much more. And I I'm a Dr. Gordon in Saw franchise lover. You are. Um, but that accent is a struggle. He's struggling, <laughs> really we're struggling, everyone's struggling. And so at least I this is fine. Like just let it go. Yeah. Another thing I will say, Carrie Elway's really, really good at playing a creep. Mm-hmm. He's that done it man, a few times. Yeah. He is, and it, it, it's good every time. Well, uh, and that's Kiss why the Girls is the other primary example for me where I'm just like, that is so good. And you're completely yeah. subverting the expectations in that movie by having it be him. And it works so, and then, he, and then when it is revealed that it's him, he play he plays it so well. It's so good. Sorry, I do I, I do appreciate his performance in this film, but having seen him play similar characters in a much more subtle and nuanced way kind of disappointed me a bit because, like, you know from the beginning that this is the guy. Mm-hmm. This guy's got something to do with it because he's just, from the first word that he said, you're like, yeah, this guy's a fucking asshole. I hate this dude so much. If you so much. didn't know it in the classroom scene, then you absolutely know it when he <laughs> runs into her outside the outside the house. Like, you yeah. you absolutely know it there. Oh, yeah. She's got the, he's got the list of names. Like, come on, just, just tell us yeah. he's the bad guy. You told right. us. <laughs> well, and I, the scene in the classroom is interesting Mm. because i think it it's hard because i think that we're looking at it from a perspective too of being the viewer we're in a horror movie we're nowhere in we're in a horror movie Mm -hmm. so we're looking for the villain we're looking for these spots of decay and the spots of people behaving badly so we can be like oh is this the person? But yeah, if this was your professor, like, would you think that, like, how far would that train of thought go? Um, if you were to, and because of kind of the supernatural aspect of this film, it's hard to kind of root it in any, like, firm, uh, I, I think, grounding of reality. Mm-hmm. But like, would I sit there and be like, "Oh, you're talking about this? I bet that you are orchestrating all the men on campus via you." <laughs> right. Hey, I'm just saying. I would have signed the petition. I'm just yeah. saying. Like, <laughs> like, yeah. And wow. and it really that whole thing reads like it, it's one of those things that I always find really weird that movies do where it'll, it'll feel like they're ramping up a lecture and like Mm -hmm. getting ready to build to a point. And then the bell rings and class is dismissed. And you're like, why did you start that lecture so late in the class period? 30 seconds before class ends. Yeah. (laughs) Right. It's like the class. 
Exactly. It's like the class gets a three and they're like, okay, 255. Anyway, here's what we're talking about today. And it's like, no. <laughs> <laughs> and every, I don't know why every movie does this. And it's just like, we're going to get to the, po- you know, the point. And this is somehow going to be very useful to you later on in this movie. Or I'm hitting on the main theme of what we're going to be discussing somehow. Like, it, it, it always works out that way. And it's always... It's always that, or it's always let's spend an extended classroom scene of the most boring bit until we get to a student that like raises their hand and is like, oh, but I want to bring up this point. And then it's like, oh, well, the bell rung. Oops. Um, we'll, we'll pick that up next time. <laughs> Which is the most unrealistic thing in any movie that does that, because everybody's looking at the time in any class that you're in, whether it be uh, like, like grade school, elementary school, high school, college, everybody's looking at the clock. No, no professor is not watching the clock and knowing how much time they have left. No student is not watching the clock and not knowing how much time they have left. Because they want to get out the door. And also a student, a student knows like, just shut up. Like within three minutes of that bell, like, Quiet. Just be quiet because you got to make an escape. You've got plans. You've got business. Either and everyone's like, a- they'll start packing their stuff up early too. Like, again, mm-hmm. as someone who used to teach high school, yeah. like you uh-huh. see all, you, you know exactly what happens in those five minutes before the class is over. Settle move with me putting my, my book in my bag. Like, oh. Yeah, maybe if I do this at like quarter speed, he won't realize what I'm actually doing. Like, no, everyone wants to get out the door, but it. So, so he's like talking about uh, prejudices and like why why he doesn't teach books written by marginalized um, authors and yeah, scumbag. He's <laughs> and and basically makes an incredibly oh, bad yeah. faith argument. Um, makes a, an incredibly obtuse point and then is like, hey, by the way, it's hard for me to do my job when people are signing petitions to get me fired. Just saying. Oh, uh, yeah. Bye, it's everybody. Those, Merry it's, Christmas. It's no the petition's finals. fault. It's the yeah. petition's fault. I didn't do anything wrong. Like, I'm, mm-hmm. I can't be held accountable. You're wrong for getting mad at me for being an asshole. Exactly. I'm not wrong for being an asshole. You're wrong for reacting to me being an asshole. I fucking hate that. That's... Oh, man, <laughs> that's Cape Fear. That's what bothered me about the original Cape Fear mm-hmm. is the whole time Robert Mitchum's like, hey, man, I'm not an asshole for raping somebody. You're an asshole for telling on me or you're an asshole for, you know, withholding evidence so that I got put into jail. Right. At oh, all. Yeah, I, I hate that. But so isn't much. that nightmare on Elm Street? It's like, who's the bad guy? The person who killed, murdered and canonically sexually assaulted children or the parents that were mad and yeah right Mm -hmm. inflicted vigilante justice not i this is me making a disclaimer do i endorse vigilante justice catch me elsewhere it's complicated it's complicated (laughs) but yeah i i always hate when you have to piece that out because it's like don't don't make me side on that. Yeah, it's like, like you don't hear make these me plant my my 
flag here because right. it's a very bad space. It's it's a weird place to be. Like you hear all these stories in the news of of like parents who will go and murder the person who sexually assaulted their young child. Mm-hmm. And you're like, uh, <laughs> where do I stand on this? You know? And it, it I mean, it, when it comes right down to it, um, being a piece of shit is not something reserved for one specific type of person or one specific group of people. Anyone can be a piece of shit. Yeah. Um, and that's really what it comes down to. Like, yes, is Freddie a piece of shit? Absolutely. Should the parents have done what they did? Nope. Um, like both things can be true at the same time. We, but yeah. it does place us in a very conflicted spot as a result. So, yeah. Um, it's it's you know a lot of shades of shit going on really when you when you, when you think about mm-hmm. it so um we are we're 32 minutes and let's go ahead and talk the plot of this thing before we dig let's any deeper because there's a lot more to talk about here obviously um but this is the part of the show that we call the plot in 60 seconds this is the part where uh usually at the behest of either the d6 of destiny or the canadian quarter of indifference one of us will be tasked to recount the plot of the film in 60 seconds or less. However, Nicole, our gracious guest, has uh, volunteered to um, recount the plot of 2019's Black Christmas in 60 seconds or less. I will go ahead and put 60 seconds on the clock. I can give you the 10 and uh, I can give you the 10 and 30 second warnings if you desire. Yeah, give me a, give me a thirty, and then okay. yeah, yeah, just give me the warnings because I'm a verbose mofo. Is <laughs> hey, it is all good, and I, I mean, I'm not gonna like if if we run out of time, I will say and time, but I will let you finish. <laughs> Unlike Kanye, I will let you finish. <laughs> so, uh, so I have uh, sixty seconds on the clock, and I will go ahead and start whenever you are ready. Okay, um. I am good to go. Riley, our main protagonist, and the holdovers at Hawthorne College are preparing to bunker down for the holiday with some of the other students kind of making their departures uh, during various points. But strange things seem afoot. Uh Sorority sisters are disappearing with parents calling and saying, hey, uh, my child was supposed to arrive on the train and never made seconds. it. Um, so Riley and her sisters, uh, after a uh, attack and after uh, some prolonged uh, uh, business of being harassed via uh, yip-yap, a.k.a. any social media that they needed to Ten seconds. <laughs> generalize, uh, they find out that it is the members of the DKO, uh, and they are being uh, brainwashed by that is Black time. Dude. Hooray! <laughs> you did it! We, we did it! It is done. All important relevant information out. Um, Broad strokes got, like, covered. Yes. I got, I got, I think, a piece of no, you're good. You're good. <laughs> we've look. We have had. Um, we oh, I mean, we've been doing this for gosh. Well, I think we're in our fourth year now, um, and that is that was great by any standard. <laughs> My favorite one though, and maybe the worst one ever, was on our Speed Racer episode, where Brett just completely loses it. 
and like it it's an it's an amazing piece of art on its own just to listen to um and i will i will like throw that one out anytime someone like feels like oh man that was that was rough or that just go but listen to the speed racer episode and <laughs> it's it's kind of amazing like we've all made our peace with it um and i know i know a lot of people uh who come on are like that was really nerve-wracking like that was more stressful than i thought it was not my intention which is why i try to ask in advance but thank you for doing that i appreciate it of course of course um yeah the um so we talked last week when Ariel was here about the use of uh the cell phones and the social media cuz the phone is a very important element in all three of these films uh communication very important aspect and mm-hmm. how in the 20 20- 2006 version it's you know the flip phone it's the t9 texting oh jesus (laughs) (laughs) it's it's all of that like um and and they use it in very interesting ways like the killer will be calling from the phone of the previous person killed um and and that you uses that to build tension and and suspense but now in the smartphone era i feel like horror films have to go even further to incorporate and either eliminate cell phones or try to incorporate them. Uh, how do you think this film did with the, uh, with the way that it incorporated and utilized uh, not just phones, but also social media and the way that we engage online? I, the use of social media, especially in horror is, is interesting. I feel like there's kind of this default of now, uh, looking at how people post, it's not just like the apps they use, how they use it. It's, oh, you posted this video and we want to punish you for doing this. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think about this film because there's this whole thing of where members of the DKO are really upset that uh, Chris had posted the performance mm-hmm. that uh, the sorority sisters do at the talent show at the beginning. And, um, you know, I also think of another film I watched, I think at the very beginning of this year, Sick, um, which has this whole thing of, uh, you know, a a video was posted and it kind of leads to the crux of the plot of the film in in a lot of ways so i think that it, there's a lot of commentary being made not just with social media but you know our what are we posting how are we posting um and where should there be kind of delineations of all right am i posting too much am i being criminally online um is this something that's appropriate um so i it will be interesting to see how this continues mm-hmm. because I still think that, you know, horror films have found really interesting ways for a very long time to just remove phones. Even though cell phones were very much like part of our daily life, it would be like, oh, no cell service. Oh, my cell phone broke Yeah. Um, at the very beginning of the film. So that or, you know, the tried and true, my, my cell phone's dead. Yeah, battery died, um, no reception, yeah. Exactly. So I think now there's this, I can't 
You can't do that anymore because people charge their shit before they leave the house. You can't do that anymore because of X, Y, or Z. So now we really have to figure out ways to to incorporate it. But it would be interesting to see folks make, um, you know, a, a film that makes a little bit more of a point of comment, commentary on it. I know there's Unfriended, um, mm. which I think does very much a lot of the same things, but... Um, yeah, you're you're exactly right. the The telephone has played such uh, a key piece in this film, and and I like the little nod to the original when uh, Helena's mom calls uh, Riley, and you get that that very reminiscent of Billy Garble yeah. on the line at the beginning. I thought that was a a really uh, nice touch there. I, I liked the allusions to the original. They're not as in your face as a lot of them are. Like this, every film in this series is so very, very different uh, from the one that preceded it. And I think the first two are the most similar, but this one is very, it, it's set at a college. There's a, a main character named Jess or, and that's about it. Like it's, it doesn't. It's very, it's very Zack Snyder, Dawn of the Dead esque in that way to where like you could call it something else and say it's an homage to black Christmas. Right. Um, but I, I also like that it in, in keeping with the title, we're, we're including things like, um, like that phone call that you mentioned, Nicole, or the, uh, the, and the, the unicorn shows the up unicorn. in the first scene that unicorn. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and another nod, which, and, and kind of like digging into lots of different pieces before this record. Cause I'm like, I know I've missed like a handful of things that maybe if I actually do some really hardcore research and hardcore define that as you will. Um, <laughs> I, one of the things that's really interesting with the kills in this film is that they subvert all of the kills from the original film where women are killed, um, and you see men killed. So, mm-hmm. Margot oh, yeah. Before before we started, women. before we started recording, I was telling Stephen how my favorite part of this movie was how one of the killers got suffocated with a bag in this yeah. one, and I was like, yes, yes, that's <laughs> that's where it's at. That's this movie. That's I want the whole thing to be that good. Yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, it was really nice. I think what you were saying earlier about social media um, sort of serves to put us in the scene in this movie that I think is probably the best at doing what it sets out to do. And it is the scene where um, she comes down and she's like, you put this online? Like, what the hell? You know, it's got all these views. And they have that whole discussion about that. And the boyfriend guy is like, well, I don't know what you expected. I I love the back and forth between all of them and him. Because it's it's so realistic of the way that when people try to communicate about these sorts of issues that it breaks down, mm-hmm. and and I I think it's it's a really powerful uh, scene because of the way that they talk to each other. Because like when he's like, "You need to calm down," like you're immediately like, "Oh, you did not just say that." But at the he's same time, all the wrong things at, yes. at the, all the wrong moments. <laughs> yes. But at the same time, you're like, you know, despite the fact that 
it, it doesn't have anything to do with you being a woman or what you're talking about, but maybe we all need to calm down. You know, there's so many yeah. ways that, that you can take that scene. Like everybody's kind of being an asshole towards each other instead of sitting down and, and having a, a calm discussion about it all, you know? And I think I, for me, it's the best scene in the movie because it just shows like how hard it is to have those kinds of discussions. I think it's very effective. Yeah, even with people that you know and mm -hmm. have a relationship with, I mean, it's always harder then, right? Mm -hmm. We never want to be able to call out our our nearest and dearest when they do something. Um, not only because we are fearful of, you know, what that conversation may do in terms of our relationship, but you always have to struggle with, you know, there's always that saying of you are who you keep close to you. You are your friends. You are kind of your inner circle. So if you're someone in your inner circle is acting like shit, what does that say about you? Mm. And, mm. and so I think that, um, yeah, it's, uh, I, I like this conversation a lot. I like a lot of the conversations because having been in a sorority in, in college, I get real tired of just like how there seems to be this this idea that you know if you are setting a film in a sorority and you have sorority sisters, they have to be kind of at odds with each other, right? Um, and you don't get that here. You mm. get that these are people who genuinely care about each other. They make missteps. They don't communicate um, as clearly as they should, but I think that they're even, I know a lot of people have issues with the character of Chris. I think that she does come from a point of truly caring about Riley and wanting to do well. Um, it's just, again, I don't think that people are having like the, the conversations with her that they need to, to say like, totally get your stance here. Is there another way that we can do this? Right. Um, so and that's her whole character in a nutshell. That was something that that sort of bothered me as the person who has the most to say um, in this film. The person who is the most outgoing with with uh, putting things out there to discuss is just the most insufferable. Like, wow! Like, I, you you wanted you want to listen to her and you would want to talk to her. But I don't, it's just like in that scene we were just talking about, like she, everything that someone said to her, she just shut it down. You know, yeah. it, it, she came off as someone who's not willing to, to listen and, and discuss. She just wants to tell you how it is, you know? And I, I don't, I don't know for me, that was a misstep but I don't know how that comes off to other people. Like, like I say, I don't, I don't know that this, as much as I want it to be, I don't know that this movie's for me. Which you know? is valid. And I'm, I'm, yeah, I, I, I love the actress. I love, uh, Alicia. Oh yeah. She's great. She, she's, she does it. Like <laughs> I love, the character honestly, wouldn't be as insufferable if she weren't as good at playing it, you know? I really love all the performances in this movie. I really think everyone is absolutely killing it. Um, and, and that's, I was talking to Tucker at the beginning. Like I, 
that's part of the reason I am so conflicted. I think this is a beautiful movie. I think the production design and the direction are phenomenal. Cinematography is great. The performances are incredible. My main problem is just the lack of nuance throughout. Like that, that becomes my big issue with the movie, but there's so many other things in here to love. And I love all the, all the, uh, the performances, all the actors. I think there's not a, a false note in any of these performances to your point. Um, Nicole about the the sisters not really being at odds with each other. I think in a lot of cases people do stuff like that in order to create tension, obviously, because yeah. you know, and then we can have you know character growth and arcs and things like that. But I think that was a very intentional uh, choice on the part of Sophia Takal, the director. Um, every every interview that I read with her leading up to this is her talking about she didn't want to. She wanted to make a movie about the power of women united for a common goal. A common goal. The, the whole thing about the ant is very reminiscent of that. Like you want your friends to be ants because they're strong. They work together. Um, they can bear a lot when they're all working together toward a common goal. And you see that even at the end when Chris comes in with that, with that bow and arrow and that kind of cadre of sorority girls with her. And mm-hmm. like, it's, that's a really cool moment. Um, and, and so like even the, the song at the beginning the performance is sort of a, a kind of a, an, a backhanded homage to mean girls. Cause they're like, we want to do the opposite of what mean girls did rather than having these girls constantly at each other's throats. We want to show the power of women united, which I think is cool. Yeah. And I think you also get that towards the end when you realize that, it's just not the sisters from, uh, I think the the sorority is Mu Kappa Epsilon. That sounds right. Um, and you realize it's not just them mm-hmm. being targeted, that it's just women. Yeah. It's um, every sorority on campus. Like the, the reveal when the security guard busts down the door and it's another sorority. And like they're, those guys are still there getting, you know, being killed. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And I like that. I I think sisters from that house, or maybe it's another house, run up to the car um, where Chris is driving and, you know, it's just like, get in. Yeah. We're, we're going to go stop some, some shit. From going we're going to crush the patriarchy. Get in. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. And so I, yeah, like, get in, loser. We're going to crush the patriarchy. <laughs> That's it. Um, exactly. <laughs> so I, I like that there's also that bond that cross sororities because that's another kind of stereotype that especially in media and films they like to pit sororities against each other and i i say sororities but i think also in that respect it's really all greeks right it's like you no two frats or no two sororities can really get to get along right you always have to be in competition with each other if 80s comedies taught me anything they taught me that that's true Revenge of the Nerds, Animal House, like it's all right there. Well, and that's the whole Greek system, right? Like it is a series of competitions. That's why you have different houses. This, My understanding of the Greek system comes from the ABC family show Greek. So uh, I don't know how, if they got it right or not, but like that seems to kind of be the whole thing is like there are several competitions throughout the, the school year, the semester or whatever. It's not, it's not you, about... You were in a sorority, Nicole, please enlighten yeah, us. That's, no. that's why I bring no. it up, because I, w- I want the real story. 
I, so not only was I in a sorority, I was the leadership in my sorority. Hey. And I was also on our Pan-Hellenic Council, which is kind of like an oversight committee for um, kind of Greek life. Mm -hmm. Um, And no. (laughs) Um, Now, I say this, and and to, to kind of offset any comments, I went to a very small college. Um, we had four sororities, four fraternities. So this is not like the most booming of sample sizes because when you get to like state schools or bigger schools, you're dealing with a lot more. Mm-hmm. Um, but there wasn't a competition. We uh, we had a frat that we did an annual fundraiser with every year because one of our sisters and one of their brothers had gotten married and she had passed away, I think, from cystic fibrosis. Oh, no. And so every year we did a teeter totterathon. Um, so we would, for I think it was 48 hours, uh, we would move around campus teeter tottering on this homemade teeter totter in different places on campus so people could come. And if so, so Abel would provide donations. Uh, we had lots of, uh, you know, collective events together. Uh, I was also a Rokai. A Rokai is a recruitment counselor. Um, so during rush week, um, you de-affiliate from your sorority. Um, so you cannot tell anyone what sorority you are from, uh, especially, I mean, I'm obviously talking to the group of folks that are going through. Uh, recruitment. Um, they cannot know what house you're affiliated with. You are de-affiliated. And you take them to all of the houses um, for the specific nights. You talk them through the process. And no, it's not necessarily a competition at all. Now, some schools may have competitions between the houses. And I do hope that you know those competitions are done in kind of a friendly way um, and in a way to, you know, hopefully have some meaning to them. But um, no, like I I had great friends that were members of other sororities and it's it's not, I, I didn't have that experience. And again, based on my experience of being on the Panhellenic Council and like, going and talking to other people who were part of, like, the Greek system in, in other schools, I'd really hope that that would be a mainstay. Well, that's what I get for, for basing all my knowledge on a TV show. <laughs> well, and I think that also owes a lot to those, again, those 70s and 80s comedies, which, I mean, if all you see is one particular kind of thing and you don't experience it yourself, you're going to assume that's what it's like, which is not the right way to do that stuff. So thank you for, for shedding some light on that for us. Cause again, I, I went to a school without any Greek whatsoever. Like I went to a tiny Christian liberal arts school about a hour and a half South of where I am right now. So, um, so yeah, there was, there was no Greek society on my campus at all. So I, uh, I still, yeah, no context. <laughs> Still watch Greek though, you guys. It's a really good show. Like it's, 
I don't know why I like it, but I do. It nothing about it interests me, but it's just so good. I I I've probably watched it four or five times in total. It's just really compelling teenage drama. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that that was a thing that could happen, but hey, there it is. Right there on. Is. Right on. Um, what what other what other talking? I mean, I feel like did we did we finish the thought on? Uh, now, now we're doing that thing where we're trying to figure out how we got on this in this particular <laughs> yeah. tangent. How did we get here? How did we get here? Because I feel like we were talking about something and we may have kind of like veered off in talking about the sorority aspect of it. Oh no, we're talking about the um, the the unification of the women sisterhood, across sisterhood. Yeah, sisterhood across sororities. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, um, did we have more to say on that topic? We want to move on to another one. What else we got? I no. I I mean I'm. I'm good. I, I like it. I, a plus comes across the board for me on that front. Right on. Word. Right on. Um, what do we think? Because uh, this is this is, I think, one of the aspects of the the film. When I the first time I saw it, I was kind of like, I don't know that I like this. The supernatural element that exists only in this version of the story. Like it's not in any previous Black Christmases. It, it is unique to this one. What do we think about it? How do we feel like it's utilized? Um, your thoughts, panel. I so, think that. Oh, sorry. You go ahead. I I mean, I'll just throw this out as a thought for your guys's reactions. Do and I'm trying to figure out how to like put these two pieces together. Okay. I feel like. Going the supernatural realm makes makes this almost a film that does have, I think, something that's more realistically based. In that, you know, yes, slashers, serial killers, etc., exist, mm-hmm. um, a threat, but a threat to women is toxic masculinity and um, these institutions that prop that up, that support it um, and and that feed it. And so I the I struggle with like, yeah, the supernatural thing is, is kind of a weird departure from the other two, but I think it's kind of uh, an interesting move considering when the film came out what it's commenting on because I think by using that it's actually saying no the threat is I think a little bit more um, I think enveloping Mm -hmm. of a society than you know a lone stalker killer etc well and that's something I, I did enjoy was the fact that it wasn't just one dude like it was in the other ones because it kind of harkens back to the original where you didn't really know much about the killer. You know nothing about the killer in the original. Yeah. Even at the end, they're just like, oh, you wanted to know something? Fuck you. It's over. Yeah. Bye. You know? <laughs> like, But in this one, I like the fact that they did that, but it, instead of making it ambiguous, they just made it every dude. Like every dude. But my problem with it is, is that they could have said the same thing. They could have done the same thing 
with just a cult, like a skull and bones sort of organization or something. They didn't have to go the supernatural route, which, like I said, at the beginning of this podcast, just it kind of negates the whole point of the film for me. It's like if they if they if they had grounded a bit more and like I said made it like some kind of secret society or even a cult like without any of the supernatural stuff I think it, for me it would have worked a lot a lot better. Do you think they added the supernatural element as a as a means of kind of trying to play up some more of the horror aspects of it? Um, because this is kind of a it it feels more like a. In, in some aspects feels more like a drama than a, a slasher in, in some aspects. I'm not going to say it's in the it's first two acts. Slasher. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, and, but obviously you have like the group, the slasher, you've got, you know, the, the masked killer aspect of it, which is very slasher, very horror, but like, I, I don't know, maybe, maybe that's another way of kind of amplifying some of those horror elements a little. I, I and that's just a stray thought that entered my head. I'm not married to that at all. Um, just, you know, something that that kind of was rattling around in here and needed to get out, I guess. No, that's a, uh, I, I think that makes sense. I mean, we also have to understand, I think, and, and you, you guys may have more specific information on this, um, but the turnaround from writing and getting this movie in theaters was very short. Yeah. Um, I think that both Sophie and co-writer April were brought on, I want to say like in February, and they had like two months. Holy crap. Um, to yeah. like get the script, and then they had to be like on location, ready to prep and go. So um, I, I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, again, them wanting to really hearken in on more of the drama of it and then saying, Oh, we were horror. we were hired to write a horror movie. So <laughs> Right. What do we do now? How do we how do we amp this this up a little bit to to give some thrills and chills. So I I I can definitely see that um as well. And um, it is rated PG-13, um, so I think there's also some, and I I am an apologist for PG-13 more. I think it can be amazing. Me too. All of us, well, yeah. Like, well-executed, brilliant stuff. Um, Rating doesn't matter. A good film is a good film. Correct. Precisely. Um, but, yeah, I think that then they further put themselves into a box of we wanted a PG-13 film, which I think was something that they, both Sophie and I think April had talked about because they wanted this to be seen by young women. Exactly. Um, And then being like, okay, so we're, this is kind of the overall thing that we're, we're wanting to do we're going for this rating now. How do we make this horror? How do we make this a Black Christmas mm-hmm. film? Um, and so I do think that that is, I, I think that's a, a really salient point of maybe some of that was like let's let's oop up the the creep factor a little bit 
with this and, and see how far that will take us. Yeah. And you're right. Very short production on this. I think five months start to finish from like pre-production to post-production. Um, very quick turnaround on this. Um, I, a lot some, there were times when they were ad-libbing lines cause the script wasn't done. Um, and, and maybe that's part of the issue is they didn't have a lot of time to really fine tune and finesse the script. So what we're seeing is maybe only a first or a second draft. I, and again, I don't want to, because again, I think the things that are being said are very important, but you know, again, there's, we've said kind of a lack of subtlety, a lack of nuance kind of running throughout that, um, could be just because they didn't have enough time to really sit and work on the scripts. No. And yeah, that, that really is, I think hitting a nail on the head there when you are dealing with really complex issues Mm -hmm. that do deserve a lot of finesse to them in the story. You've got to give yourself that time and that grace to really, to really work it. And yeah, if you are going off of draft one, two, even three, where you're not really able to like skin and say, okay, what, how is this hitting? How do we want to incorporate this here? What is this doing? Um, I, I think that you are um, in, in kind of a bad spot there. And again, one of the reasons why I, uh, some of the criticism that you hear about the film with it not hitting as hard on certain elements or going as far as it can in in certain places or maybe missing a mark, I totally get. Because if you are on, you know, a timer, you got to go fast and and there's going to be stuff that's kind of left to to the wayside, unfortunately. Yeah. Well, this this is all news to me. So I'm glad you guys brought this up because I think – it just added a half a star to my rating, knowing how little time they had to do this. Honestly, I'd like to rewatch that with rewatch this movie with that context, because I think I'd be like, yeah, I let that slide because, wow, they really did not have any time to make this movie. <laughs> right. I mean, th- so I, we should mention the Blumhouse of it all. Um, I yeah. Nicole shaking her head. I. I <laughs> yep. So Jason Blum. um, just said something very stupid in a very public forum and um, ate all kinds of crow for it. Um, basically, what did he say? I want to know. Oh, you don't know? Oh, God bless you. I don't know. Um, he basically, he was asked about why he didn't have any women directing any of his films uh, that he produced for Blumhouse. And he said, oh Here we go. I'm, I'm going to, I'm not going to quote it verbatim. I'm going to give you the gist. Basically, um, there aren't a lot of women directors and the ones that are out there don't like horror. Well, that's just false, which is the dumbest thing a human being has <laughs> ever said. I'm checking my notes here and it is accurate. That is in fact, the dumbest thing anyone has ever top said. five, top five <laughs> dumbest things anyone's ever said in public <laughs> to a mass audience. Just showing his ass. <laughs> wow. It's such a, it's such a desperate, wow. desperate, asshole way to try to defend yourself again and so willfully ignorant too yes like like, so you want to put yourself on the map as like a horror house and you're sitting there saying that there's not female directors in the genre like 
oh, like, oh, let me show you yeah. a letterbox list or five. Yeah. Right? Just show the man some receipts. And he got, <laughs> like, l- properly and righteously lambasted online for it. Um, to the to the extent that the next day he basically had to make a he was forced to make a public apology. Like, um, wow, really sorry. Um, I'm gonna do better. And to his credit, he has. There have been this Sophia Tacal is the first female director of a Blumhouse film, but she has not been the last. Um, there have been several Blumhouse features directed by women since then i like it i like it when people learn from their mistakes that's always the the best possible outcome particularly when they make them so publicly yes Yes. um (laughs) but so this this film uh he has the meeting with sophia to call he offers her a few different films and this is the one that she takes because again she wants to make she she liked the themes of and i think we talked about this a little bit over the last couple episodes just the idea that you women don't know who is and is not a creep at first glance um you take this idea of these you know vulnerable uh women and you in- literally introduce a killer into the house um and how that has influenced the slasher genre as a whole like to take those ideas those concepts in what is a surprisingly feminist movie for the night for the, the mid 70s and modernize them and update them and i think in that she is very successful um, that she takes again those themes that the first film explored, even if it is accidental, um, that it explored and kind of updates them and modernizes them. But unfortunately, by because because Jason needed a Christmas release, there wasn't a lot of time to put it out. So um, that makes me think of um, another scene that I thought was was very effective <clears throat> in showing how difficult issues like this can be to navigate is at the very beginning of the film, that first gal that gets killed and she's walking along and that one dude is just walking as well. And she is terrified of this dude. And this dude, Mm -hmm. he's just on his phone. He's not a part of anything. He takes a turn when he takes a turn. He's just a dude. And I love how that scene showed how terrified she was of him. But also... It, it, I don't know. It, it speaks to the fact that even when there's no danger present, that it feels like women have to be afraid in mm-hmm. those situations. And I thought, I thought that that was a really, a really, it was a standout scene. Just like the other one I mentioned, where they were talking about the video online. That one's way more chaotic, but this one was very subtle in the way that it did that. And I thought it was, it was really well done. And I liked, I liked the way they said what they were saying. Mm-hmm. I thought that was really cool. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I, that, and of course that scene reminds me of the, I think it's a, a John Mulaney bit about, uh, him thinking that a woman wanted to race him to the subway when in fact she was just <laughs> like, so like she walks a little faster. So it's like, Oh, she's trying to beat me. Huh? So he walks a little no, faster and yeah. And I'm just like, no. man. And then it wasn't until like she got in like Pat that it wasn't until like halfway to the subway. He's like, Oh, Oh, she's scared of me. I should stop and and did. But I was just like, mm. yeah. Yeah, I mean, again, unfortunately, there are, you know, whether it's this opening scene, I, I, I have yet to meet someone 
that hasn't, you know, a female who hasn't encountered a situation like that where it's late mm-hmm. at night and we're walking to a car, we're walking to the train, we're doing something and there's someone that seems to maybe be a little bit too close behind us, uh, you know, kind of keeping up with us a little bit too too quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, uh, I think that this film you're able to remove some of those, I think, uh, aspects that we talked about that maybe it doesn't land. I think this is really important. And then when you loop in and you find out, well, the threat isn't all men, it's society Mm -hmm. and how society has boosted patriarchy and more of these harmful components of misogyny. And we get that even with the character of Helena going... Yeah, or yeah. trad wife. Um, and then she gets the 7,000 bones in her neck broken because of it. Right. How many bones does she have in her neck? Like, that's like the most complicated, longest. Like, I counted about 30 bones being cracked there. Just the sound. It's a, it's a very, For like, one quick. It's a very graphic sound was pretty effect, hilarious. Yeah. But what you were saying uh, about that, um, about society, it's it's kind of, it, it likens itself to, uh, like, the, the people say all cops are bastards. And when they say that, they're not saying each individual person that is a police officer is a bad person. They're saying that the system is so fucking corrupt that you can't be a good cop. And, and, and that's kind of, I feel like, that's the, the scene I was talking about where the guy's walking behind her like that guy's not doing anything, but because of the way society is, she's right to be afraid of him. Like she's right to take those precautions. And I think that's why that scene in particular was so powerful for me. Now you phrased it so perfectly. It's when we make these statements about, you know, all men, we're not saying each individual male. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, We're saying that, patriarchy. We're saying that the systematic um, and institutional components that I think, you know, foster patriarchy and misogyny and all of these things are are bad. Rape culture is, is a component to this. Mm-hmm. And when we are able to start to, I think, really piece apart those pieces and say okay well then how do we fix the system so that there can be people who want to go and do good things protect society as police officers and not be within a system that is really really bad um, and does a lot of harm to especially marginalized um, communities you guys, that's what I love about this podcast is I will be so I will hate a movie so much and then we'll talk about it for an hour and a half and I'll end up kind of liking it without even having to watch it ever again. Because now that we've had this discussion, I'm thinking, how cool is it that the only good guy in the movie still gets brainwashed at the end? Yeah. 
and and before guys, and, uh, before it all makes sense we, now. Before we started recording, you you were you were kind of against that. Point. Oh, I was I, mad. I'm mad. I was mad about this whole movie. But like, the more we talk about it, the more I'm like, yeah, maybe maybe I don't need to see this again. But maybe I also don't need to be so hard on it. You know. <laughs> I mean, and again, it's it helps to consider perspective. Again, maybe this isn't for us. It, it helps to consider perspectives not our own, which is why. It's important for everyone to have these conversations and to open themselves up to having these conversations, which unfortunately, based on the reviews for this film, not a lot of people were really willing to do. Yo, it's it's very polarizing. I looked on Letterboxd and it's either one stars or like five stars. People Mm -hmm. either really fucking dig this or they really hate it. Mm -hmm. There's like no in between. Yeah. And especially having seen it in theaters and enjoying it and and really just kind of sitting and and thinking about it um it was not a a space where you felt comfortable coming out in support of the movie because right you would get these really these really kind-hearted gentle folks uh slipping into your dms your replies and saying no you're wrong Feminism is wrong. This movie is too woke, um, and and all sorts of things. And and this was at a time where I think, yeah, people were being really toxic. But uh, now I like it's a, a complete hellscape. Um, so I, I yeah, I this is a film that I I do think that hopefully more people will will you know give some some more chance to um you're right it's not gonna hit for everyone it's obviously got an intended audience but i think if you remove i think that you know we talk a lot about kind of the brainwashing and i think unfortunately i don't want to say that people succumb to kind of the group think of this movie is bad and it's just bad but i do think that was part of it as well mm-hmm. as people just really from the get-go the the loudest voices were saying how awful this was and then there were some of us saying well yeah it's it's not the best but is it that bad really um so I, that that makes me so happy to hear because uh i i like more folks that can can say all right well maybe Maybe there's another viewpoint to this or, hey, I still don't like it, but I totally understand now why some people would. Yeah. Like, that's the best. Yeah. And I mean, I I personally always want to try to be that person. I don't want to be the guy, you know, throwing water on the wrong fires and gasoline on the on the wrong <laughs> fires. You know, I want to I want to try to I, and I'm I, I'm careful to try not to say certain movies are bad so much as to say certain movies are just not for me um, because every, every movie is somebody's favorite movie um, even if it's not mine. So even movies that I may not have a lot of good things to say about, I will still try to find something in them that I like. And I've, I've Steven. made that mistake on this podcast before. So, and I will probably make it again. <laughs> let's be honest. I'm human. Steven, consider this food fight is someone's favorite movie. That is so hard for me to consider. Um, 
I Swall- that- see if you can swallow that one, Steven. Can you swallow that Look, one? Look, I I I kind of have to, and I know exactly whose favorite movie it is. The guy that made it, it is his favorite movie. Um, I am sure. Um, oh. You still haven't seen Food Fight, have you? No, man. No. Brett and I are going to have to force you to watch that someday, man. This comes oh. from a place of zero context, and I love it. I love it. Nicole, you haven't seen Food Fight, have you? Uh, no, but now I feel like, do I, do I dare? I don't. Steven, Steven and Brett say it's the best film, or the best, the worst film they've ever seen. It is, it is very bad. It is a very, very bad film. Uh, and I've seen is, some bad movies, which is why I'm like, is it? It's poorly made. It's poorly executed. It's, it's got the most craven, um, like ideas behind it. Um, it's it it's basically a movie. Uh, it's an animated children's film about supermarket mascots. Um, the it was never finished. Uh, there was a finished copy, but it got uh, the hard drive got deleted, and so they had to throw the thing Allegedly. together. Um, yeah, I mean, it got it got Toy Story two'd. Basically, was what happened. But they didn't have I'm that one person with people, the backup. Some people will say that that was an excuse for embezzlement, but. Which it may very well have been. Um, you can see, like, the trailer, the footage in the trailer for the movie is better than the actual footage in the movie. Um, wow. It's it's a whole thing. Um, we we do get into it on that episode. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, I don't know, I would not recommend it, but if you have a morbid curiosity for these things, go for it. Like I said, I'm not going to recommend it to Tucker. At some point, I'm just going to force him to watch it because we had to. Yeah. Yeah, I probably owe you one, so. <laughs> Wild. Um, now, I'm I'm interested in talking about this film with you both. Like, what, um, I know that we mentioned the performances earlier. Are there any particular performances that stand out to you in this film that you're like, I really see them trying something kind of cool here. I, I really, I mean, I'm a, I'm a big fan of Imogen Poots. I just, I just think she can do no wrong. She's phenomenal. Uh, I love her as Riley. I think she is doing uh, just incredible. And I, Ali Shannon too. I love her. Like, I think she is, I mean, I, the, you know, whatever issues any, any one of us might have with the character, she's absolutely killing it. Like she's doing such a great job. Um, and to have those two as kind of the, the, the leads as it were um, is I think really good. And, and they, I think they work really well together and off of one another. Uh, I don't, I don't really have any, <clears throat> anybody that stood out. I don't think anybody stood out as bad uh, with the exception of the, the main frat guy. I thought his performance was a little over the top. But I, I think maybe the script sort of called for that. So I don't know if that was really a, a him thing or if that's just a problem I have with the screenplay and the way that his character was written. But he he seems like almost over the top and, and, and like villainistic, if that's a word. Um, where f- terrible person doing terrible things deserves to be hated but i just thought the performance was a bit a bit much it was more than it needed to be i think 
but I think I, other than that, I think everybody did fine. I don't, nothing stands out as bad, but also nothing really stands out as like phenomenal or, or groundbreaking or anything. Yeah. And I, I like, you... I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I, I'm a big Imogen Poops fan as well. And I, I think that in a film that does make a lot of broad strokes, she does actually give some real quiet moments mm. where you can see some different things happening within kind of her internal landscape, which I imagine is a little bit more complex to do when, again, you have a script that's really speaking to broad strokes. So I I like that, especially the scene where um, she goes to the campus police security and is mm. talking about how, you know, Helena is missing, didn't arrive. Um, and you see, like, these really tiny moments of her breakdown of, like, I'm going through this again. I'm talking about something with someone who's supposed to help and no one is helping no one's believing well then that's that's what i thought was really interesting about that scene because it reminded me a lot of of the scene i keep bringing up where they're talking about the video uh in the kitchen and it turns into a a shit show um whereas like in in barbarian the cop clearly is just like this bitch is crazy you know in in this like you don't like both people seem kind of rational like you understand that she's worried and you understand why but also the information and the evidence that she has like what's he supposed to do like what what kind of information is that to go on you know and i love i love the juxtaposition of that to where it's like you know she's right but you also know that she's not telling him anything that he can act on you know i thought that was really clever mm-hmm. yeah. yeah absolutely yeah, this I I I am also gaining a greater appreciation for this film as we discuss it for sure. Like it's podcast successful. Like it it it's definitely it again. I I'm starting to appreciate more about it. That I think I think the main issue just boils down to the script because I like I'm I'm realizing as we discuss it I like just about everything else surrounding yeah. it. It's just you know it just the script seems a little uh, rushed, sloppy. It's just not tight. It's just it, not tight enough yeah there's a lot of great things happening in it but it's just they didn't have enough time to really tighten it up well and i feel like there's a lot of little things that are brought up or somehow like tangentially in the fold that never go anywhere um Mm -hmm. because you also are dealing with like issues of class and um like a number of different things, but they're never really explored mm. um, because this has a very, I think, specific, like, here's where we're going. This is our focus. This is what we're talking about. This is what we're doing. So stay with us and do not veer anywhere <laughs> off this. Keep hands and path. arms inside the car for the duration <laughs> of the ride. Yeah. Exactly. And, and I feel like that, uh, to me, I think that's kind of a detriment. I know. Lots of people have issues with Chris, especially in the beginning, mm-hmm. um, where Riley, she is part of the performance at the talent show, but she doesn't want to be. 
It's clearly uh, triggering for her to do this. Yeah, it is. And she doesn't want to be like, she, there's this whole discussion around should victims of sexual assault, like as a victim, where where is the onus? Is there onus? Should there be any onus mm. on you to be someone that is speaking to your experience and sharing that in any way? Because that can be very painful, difficult, and upsetting. Um, I think the film doesn't handle that as, I think, deftly as it should. Because at the end of the day, Chris is right. Um, that's her assertion, and that's what the film, I think, is kind of coming down on. Well, yeah, because Riley turns to her and says, you're, I, you know, you're right. I should have been fighting the whole time. I know this is not the time for I told you so, but I did tell you so. Like, that's... Exactly. That's the exact exchange. And it's like, yeah, no. Um, that, that, that shouldn't be a takeaway. Um, I volunteered with the DC Rape Crisis Center, mm. um, doing like their hotline and also doing some educational stuff as someone that's experienced sexual assault. Like you cannot, you you can't put that on someone. Um, people have to be able to speak when they want to, how they want to. That's their story. That's their thing to share. Right. And to put them in, she is really, Chris is constantly putting Riley in those situations of, you know, putting her down because she's not fighting. She's not an activist. She's not doing the things that Chris thinks that he should. And we understand that maybe this is coming from a place from Chris of wanting to do good, um, make an impact. But you know, failing to see kind of the forest through the trees, I guess. Yeah. Um, understanding how that can be much more harmful. And I don't know that I would say if there's one thing about the film that I just have a hard time gelling with, it's, it's that component and, and trying to make sense of like, I kind of like, Chris, I know you want to be a good friend. I know you want to be encouraging. You want to build your your friend up. But this is not the, the way to necessarily do it. Well, I think that's her, her, the characterization of that character through the whole film is she's someone who has a, a lot of rage and justify, justifiably, justifiably so. Mm-hmm. But she, I don't think she considers how she's directing that rage it's it's righteous anger um but i think she's also working on she's it seems like she's trying to contextualize riley's experience based on her own well this is you're not doing what i would do in this situation therefore you're not handling it correctly Mm -hmm. which is reductive and and honestly yeah not not a great look Mm -hmm. um because everybody is different because no two people are exactly alike in any context um that's that's riley's trauma to deal with her own way um and no one else can speak to that experience for her and nor should they um so yeah i feel like 
Yeah, I agree. But and the the frustrating thing to me is that that realization of Riley's at the end there, the oh, I should have been fighting the whole time. Um, that's basically the only character development we get in this movie. Like for the most part, these are all very static characters. There's not much growth over the course of the film for for anyone but Riley, really, which is not necessarily a bad thing. Um, some, well, some... also, it's unfortunately pretty realistic as well. Right. Yeah, I I love that you said that because there, there are times to where, like, how many movies have you watched where someone takes, you know, this emotional arc mm. and they're like, this is the most predictable and ridiculous thing. I could have sat here and, like, at minute 42, they're going to have this realization. They're going to make some comment about how they needed, oh, you know, it it wasn't the journey. It was the friends that we made along the way. Right. Um, <laughs> uh, so I like the idea. Like, I, I, I always bristle, like, there needs to be, like, some big character thing, especially for someone like Riley that has experienced something really, really challenging. Right. And... Her sexual assault happened, I think, three years prior to this, but she's now face-to-face with her attacker, mm-hmm. and this person never uh, got justice um, and has, you know, gone on to lead successful lives, and, and how painful, I think, in a way that also is because even when you don't want to speak about something, knowing that the person who caused you so much hurt and pain is out there and potentially doing it to other people, um, but also is just like, I'm bothered. It's like, I'm not disposable of a person that hurting me meant nothing to them. So I... Just there's so much to I think Riley's experience and her trauma that to what you were saying earlier, you know, for Chris, she's just not understanding like, okay, maybe this is how you would have reacted in the situation and this is how you would have channeled what you've gone through in your experience and but A, you can never say that until you're in that position. Correct. Um because trust me, how many times do we think, oh, this would, if I was in a horror movie and I was in this situation, I would do, no, you're probably going to be scared out of your mind and you're not going to make the most logical, sensical choice in that moment. Right. Um, and I think, I, I don't know, like, I, I like Chris because I like the passion that she brings. And I do think that there's so much care to her. In that she loves her sisters and she wants to build these really strong relationships and she wants her sisters to feel supported and empowered. But she's just kind of like cutting them off a bit at the knees as well by saying, well, this is how you need to do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And not every, every way works for every person. Your way is not necessarily the best way just because it works for you. Um, as someone coming from education, that's a lesson that a lot of educators sometimes have to learn the hard way. I did. 
um, you know, the way that I teach is not going to be conducive to every student. And so I have to, I have to meet them where they are rather than forcing them up to my level. And, you know, that, that comes in the same way when dealing with, with these traumatic events, just because this is what you would do doesn't mean it's the right way to do it. Um, and that's, yeah, again, that's unfortunately very, very realistic in that regard. So. Yeah. But I think also it, it just becomes a really tangled thing because in a film that's wanting to make, I think, commentary about the more institutional uh, components of these aspects of harm, it's like, well, you do need people who are able to to be a strong voice mm -hmm. um, and really push because that's how change does happen. It is Chris and her activism that gets the bust moved right. um, from the administration office. Now, we could say that that's actually the most villainous move uh, of the film because that we then realized that it was a fucking water fountain for toxic masculinity goo. Yeah. And yeah it's it's a lot <laughs> it's a lot yeah for sure all right final thoughts let's i know we got uh we're kind of up against the clock here so final thoughts before we move into the box office on this one i think i said all that i had to say right on for now Unless somebody make until somebody brings up something that makes me think about it in a different way, and then I'm like, oh wait, I have a whole new perspective on that. Now I have opinions because that happens. That happens to me. It does a lot frequently. Which is um, it's, I, I I like I like being that way because uh, I like I like learning. You know, I, it's so boring just to to stick to your guns. You know, whether they're good guns or bad guns. I think it's better to, you know, listen to people and, and try to see things from their perspective. And it's okay to change an opinion. It's okay to change your mind. Uh, some people just get so stuck on that. Like, I can't be wrong. You know, I can't, right. I can't change my opinion. I can't be fallible, but well, yeah, you kind of have to be, or you're, are you even a human being if you're not like, right. That's my final thought on this film. <laughs> right on. Bam. Nicole, final thought. I, I like this, and it's a film that surprisingly continues to work for me. Um, not perfect, but I think we talked about, I think, both some production things that really did a disservice, I think, to really making this a much more cohesive uh, piece and, and maybe working out some of those wrinkles with talking about some of these really really dark things. Um, but yeah, I, I, I like it. I think it's good. Right on. Black Christmas 2019 comes out on December 13th, which was a Friday. So Friday, the 13th, 2019, Ooh, uh, it opens at number five. Um, earns $4.2 million in its opening weekend on its way to a total gross domestic gross of 
million. Combine that with another 8.1 international. So we've got a total worldwide box office of 18.5. Not a huge multiplier. Um, the 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 uh, advertised production budget was five million. Um, with advertising and everything else, probably maybe a little closer to ten. So maybe just made its money back domestically, um, but not. I don't remember huge... any marketing for this movie. I didn't even know that there was another remake until pretty recently. Well, the thing about the trailer is it pretty much gives the entire plot of the movie away. Um, oh, sweet! I'm glad I didn't watch it then. <laughs> yeah, the entire movie is right there in the trailer. So if oh, you've boy. seen the trailer, you've seen the movie. Tragically. Um, I, and in fact, I watched it after watching the movie today. Cause I was like, I, I really need to, and yeah, it, it, every, like to, to the point where you see Carrie Elwes in the robes in the, oh, cult come room, on. like it's all, I mean, in not there. that it's not, not that it's not obvious from the first scene, but still, come on, give us a little mystery. Right. Right. So, I mean, yeah, it just, mm. um, this film opens, like I said, at number five, number one, also opening this week. Uh, to a much more impressive $59.3 million is Jumanji The Next Level. Uh, what if we took Jumanji to the next level? Um, and then uh, in second place, we've got Frozen 2, which uh, in its four weeks of release has earned over $360 million. Uh, Knives Out in third place, one of my favorite films of 2019. Love that movie. Um, that's been out for three weeks. Uh, Richard Jewell also opening this week at number four. That gets a uh, four point seven. Never million. even heard of that man. What is that? That's that Clint, Clint Eastwood. Eastwood. Yeah, about the uh, individual that was connected to the bombing in Atlanta. Correct? The Olympic, the Olympic it, bombing, yeah. and how is they railroaded good? him. I've heard is it's it great. Good? It's okay. got my, it's got my boy Paul Walter Hauser in it, so it can't be it's, bad. The the lead performance is outstanding. I have very complicated feelings about Clint Eastwood. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. See, that's where I'm coming from because, like, the man is a very talented actor and director, just artist all around. But boy, does he have some shit takes on some stuff, and sometimes it really bleeds into his movies. Yeah, stuff like Gran Torino and mm-hmm. The Mule. It's just like, ah, Clint. Ooh, it's the opposite of this movie. It's saying something shitty, <laughs> but it's really well made. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, if only we could find. A room with empty chairs. To, right. To talk oh, to you, you, you'd have him. You'd have him busy for months, man. You wouldn't be able to get out of that room. I mean, really, that's why he never got into podcasting. It was completely unlistenable. <laughs> <laughs> You're just sitting there talking to an empty chair for an hour at a time. Like, who does that? Come on, Clint. Um, <laughs> and then, of course, this film opening at number five, rounding out the rest of the top ten, you've got Ford v. Ferrari at six, Queen and Slim at seven, A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood eight, Dark Waters nine, and 21 Wait, Bridges ten. Was A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, was that the movie where Tom Hanks was Mr. Rogers? I think that's correct. Yes. I like that movie. Yeah. That I, did I, not think, I, I, did I not always get one. it. I always get it confused with the I think it's Won't You Be My Neighbor, which is like the documentary. The documentary, mm-hmm. right. Which yeah. Um, it came out right around the same time, if I recall. Which it adds to the goddamn confusion. It's like 
am I going to see Mr. Rogers or am I going to see Tom Hanks? Right. When I pull this up, what what adventure awaits? Um, no, they're they're both very good though. Tom Hanks kind of went on a little run there, playing uh, you know people we loved as kids. He was Walt Disney in that saving uh, Mr. Banks, saving Mr. Banks. He was Mr. Which Rogers. though completely false and misrepresentative of not only everything that happened, but the people involved is still a wonderful film. <laughs> I really <laughs> like that movie. Like it's really good and wholesome and sweet. You also really love Mary Poppins, though. So. I do. I do. That's true. You have Mary Poppins tattooed on your body. So that's true. That is true. Um, the Tomatometer score on this one is a 40%. Uh, the critics' consensus better than the 2006 remake, yet not as sharp as the original. This Black Christmas stabs at timely feminist feminist themes, but mostly hits on familiar pulp. Mm. Yeah. Um, uh, sometimes I'm with the critics. This time I'm a little hmm, on the, with that one. Uh, Black Christmas, uh, the Metascore is a 49 based on mixed or average reviews from 25 critics. And the letterbox score is a 1.9. Oh, stop. Right? That's the, the current letterboxed average as I'm looking at it. So, Nicole, out of five stars, how would you rate 2019's Black Christmas? I'm going to be generous and i'm gonna give it i'm gonna hover somewhere between a 3.5 and a 4 i really like the 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 swings that this film makes Mm -hmm. and i think that that to me makes up for for some of the misses Mm -hmm. um because i given the turnaround time that they had to make this there is really clear vision with it. There's no, I think, misreading what some of the messaging is and was intended to be. So right. I'm going to go with a 3.5 okay. to a 4. Right on. Tucker, what about yourself? Now, it's important to note that uh, at the beginning of this podcast, uh, my rating was a but there's always something to be said for a film that you can have a really good conversation about good or bad and and not just because of of the different perspectives of this conversation but because of the context of like you said it was a movie that had a lot to do in a very little bit of time uh this is gonna be a 2.75 for me okay Fair yeah. enough. I initially had this one at a 2.5. And based on this conversation, I'm bumping that to a three. So that does give us, oh, let's say our average about on this three. one is about a three. Got an oh. average of about a 3.2 is that our average on this fair. one. So, yeah. That seems fair. So that's how the disenfranchised letterbox is going to rate it <laughs> there. Um, Nicole Goebel, it has been a long time coming having you on, and we will absolutely have to have you back. It is This has been an incredible delight. Thank you so much for doing this. Um, tell, us, tell us where we can find you. Tell us about Bodies of Horror, which if you're not listening, you should be listening to Bodies of Horror. T- tell us what you got going on. Plug, plug, plug. 
Oh, always the best time of any podcast. Right. Um, yes. Uh, so Bodies of Horror uh, is a podcast where uh, we look at films through a lens of disability. So, uh, you know, always, you know, any kind of horror film is up for discussion. And, you know, when we talk about disability, it's really such a, a broad, um, I think, thing as well. So we've hit on lots of different components of disability, mental health, because that's part and parcel with that as well. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah, bi-weekly over on the Anatomy of a Scream uh, network. So, uh, yeah, give it a listen if if you are, are so inclined. Um, I'm so thrilled to be here. You're right. This has been such a, such a long time coming, and uh, know that you guys are... Uh, the door is wide open for you guys anytime that there's something that you're like, oh, this film talks about disability, or maybe there's a connection here, and you guys want to come over to Bodies of Four. Uh, the seats are ready for you, 100%. Excellent. Uh, and where can we find you on social media? So you can find me on uh, Twitter, X, Twixt, uh, Yip Yip. Uh, <laughs> Gotta get that Yip Yip. Yeah, at, at Bodies Horror. Um, I'm on Instagram, uh, which I've been having a lot of fun with, actually. Um, and you can find me over there. And I, I have to make sure uh, it's Bodies of Horror Podcast mm-hmm. on Instagram. And then uh, Bodies of Horror on Blue Sky or Blue Ski. Uh, so, yeah, I'm, I'm there out and about. So... Uh, feel free to follow to find random thoughts. Absolutely. Love it. it. It's it's nice to know that you're another person who knows how to pronounce Blueski. Yes. Thank you. Because Steven's over here every week. He's like, Blue Sky. And I'm like, dude, I, it's all I one word. It, it's Blueski. I calls it Come like on. it is. I calls Come it on. like I sees it. Are you familiar with the English language, Steven? It's Blueski. It's got to be. Mm. You can find the Disenfranchised podcast on Blue Sky, oh. uh, Instagram, Facebook, and Son Letterboxd at DisenfranchPod. Uh, shoot us an email, DisenfranchPod at gmail.com. Uh, hit up our Patreon, patreon.com slash DisenfranchPod, where for just five bucks a month, you get access to literal days of content, uh, like secondary shows. Uh, oh, including our weekly What Are We Watching show, which the episode that just dropped uh, as of this recording features our good friend Ariel Powers Schaub, and we're all talking about what we watched. is a good time. A good time was had by all. And uh, yeah, so head on, head us up over there, patreon.com slash disenfranchpod. Uh, also, if you're on uh, the internet, swing on over to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, give us a five-star rating and review. That goes a long way to helping. In fact, if, if you have a podcast, and you like us, and you haven't given us one of those, do it, because um, you know how important those are to, to helping people find their audience. I tried. I actually went on a tear not too long ago and just tried to find as many of my friends as podcasts and give them the ratings and reviews. If because I if I realized I hadn't, I was like, oh, get, fix this. Uh, and and I don't think Mike knew that mine was mine and absolutely like popped mine up uh, across all the social medias. I was like, oh, that that was Aww. me. <laughs> 
I was like, I don't think he, he knew that was mine, but yeah, there, there's me. Um, but yeah, please, please, please do that. That'll help us find a lot more listeners. I am your host, Stephen Foxworthy. You can find me on Instagram, Letterboxd, and Blue Sky at Chewy Walrus. <laughs> Chewy Walrus. Tucker, where can we find you? Uh, you can find me on the Instagrams and on YouTube at Ice909. That's I-C-E-N-I-N-E, the number zero and the number nine. Uh, you can also find me on Instagram. I have a page called Tuck Mugs. That's Tuck underscore Mugs. Uh, it's, it's a page about mugs and where they came from and what's in them and pictures of them. And our long silence was finally broken last week. About time. My tulips are up, you guys. I've been teasing the tulips. I've been teasing the tulips. But my hand-painted tulip mug is up this week. And hopefully that will sustain people. Because... (laughs) Are these these mugs that you make? No, 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 no. If if I were that talented, how awesome would that be? (laughs) But no, these are... I'm. See, I'm... I'm someone who is by nature a collector, but someone who is against the mentality of collecting. So I've decided to focus all that energy towards something that is useful. Coffee mugs. I use them all the time. So I can collect those and use them. They're practical. So now I have an outlet to show those off on Instagram called Tuck Mugs. Again, at Tuck underscore mugs. And uh, we just we post a picture of the mug. I write a little blurb about uh, where I got the mug, the origin of the mug, what it means to me. Sometimes there's a big story, a big fun story with it. And sometimes it's just, you know, I I got this at a thrift store and it's really cool. And then I put what is in the mug, which is usually coffee, but it's going to be soup soon. It's winter and I I feel soup in a mug coming on. Maybe Mm. even like breakfast cereal in a mug too. So who knows? Also, something we pad out the weeks with in between posts are we have guest mugs where anybody that is a fan of the podcast or is podcast adjacent or anybody any joe off the street that likes the page can email us at disenfranchpod at gmail.com follow the format send us a picture and and give us uh where the mug is from what it means to you and what's in it and we'll post it up there we'll tag you in it like guest mugs are kind of the backbone of tuck mugs because your boy only has so many mugs Mm. and i'm not saying that i'm i'm towards the end of my mug collection i'm not i'm far away i'm just saying i can't be posting two or three times a week and expect for this to last i only have so much cupboard space i only have so much cupboard space you guys (sighs) so please guest mugs we need them anybody that can hear my voice right now you are qualified to send in a guest mug. At tuck I, mugs, I may, tuck underscore mugs. I may do this because Please do. I have some very, very special mugs. Ooh, and those are the best kind. That, and to know that there's a a place for them. And there's a place on the internet for that, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> in a place that I feel was designed for mugs, Instagram. Mm-hmm. That's all that should be on there. It's just Dude, pictures. yeah. Yeah. Of cats and mugs. Well, that, cats and mugs that, and food. That was my idea behind the the this Instagram account is that I was sick of just scroll, scrolling through like 
dumb shit from my friends that I'm sure it's important to them, but I really don't care. And just ads and, and TikTok videos. And it's just stupid and boring and who cares? And, and some of it's very enraging. They call it doom scrolling for a reason. But then maybe maybe I could have my own little corner of the internet where we just look at mugs and talk about how cool they are. <laughs> That's fun, right? Everybody likes that, right? I don't see how you couldn't. Right? Um, that is our episode on 2019's Black Christmas. And that concludes our Blackest Christmas mini-series that we've been running for the last few weeks. Uh, and this episode is going to be dropping uh, just a scant four days before the Christmas holiday we do from all of us here at the disenfranchised podcast, wish you a very happy holiday, whatever you celebrate, however you celebrate, we hope you do have, will have, have had a great one. Uh, so from all of us to all of you, uh, I am your host, Stephen Foxworthy from my co-host Tucker, the absent Brett Wright, and our very special guest, Nicole Goebel, wishing you and yours a very happy holiday season and the blackest Christmas possible. <laughs>